You're listening to Death of the Reader, Flex and Herds, and Jim Noy here for your Woo! Murder Mystery World Tour as we discuss that very man, Jim Noy's book, The Red Death Murders. It's the first time, Herds, we've ever actually had an author on as we roast their book. Oh my goodness. And it's always slightly terrifying, I've got to say. So, Jim, uh, I hope you know my palms are sweaty as we begin this conversation. It's wonderful to have you. As long as that's a result of nervousness and nothing else, Flex, that's fine. <laughs> Whoa. We are discussing <laughs> all the way to the end of the Red Death Murders this week on the show. Herds has completed his read-through. I'm very excited to dive into this because it turns out that Thomas is, isn't, is, isn't, is, isn't descendant to the throne. He's a fake king, probably. It's wild. I, goodness, I don't even know where to begin with this. I really enjoyed attempting to unpack this novel as we've gone along. But yeah, Thomas as a protagonist is fascinating because obviously, as we spoke about in our first week with, with your Jim, you know, we've got this 13 year old boy to be a fresh pair of eyes and see the world as though it was new to himself. But also he has all of the power because he is being proposed as the next king but only because the people who like know that he isn't actually the King's descendant are all dead or in on the lie. Like it's, it's wild. We're pulling this poor boy into such a, such a huge decision. He has to lie for his country. Why did you do this to Thomas? Why do you torture him? So <laughs> partly because he tortured me so much in the writing of this book. No, it was it's fundamentally setting up the juxtaposition where you have someone who is supposed to take on the responsibility. So I, I, we're, we're spoiling this. So obviously Fergus Highstone, it turns out, was behind the whole thing precisely because he was trying to get out of his responsibilities because he didn't want to take power in, in the wake of the devastation wrought by the Red Death murders. And so there's that, there's juxtaposing his reluctance to do something which he is frankly obliged to do and putting that against Thomas's willingness to take on something which he actually has no right to do because it's, it's fundamentally the good and decent thing. And there's a bit of me that's sort of fascinated by the selfishness of people in power. Just every so often, you just think, what if somebody was just doing this for a nice reason? What if somebody was just willing to take on this incredibly terrifying, overbearing, overwhelming mantle just because it is the decent and the right and the proper thing to do? And that is essentially the moral of the entire book there. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very apparent in the way that we like jump from, you know, the revels contrasted to the horrors of the plague, the inside of the castle to the outside the people who fought in the war compared to those who didn't. Like, everything is in such direct, stark contrast one-to-one. -one. Like, even the two brothers have a very decisively different perspective on things. It's clearly, like, a real foothold for the way that you told the story. Yeah, it, it, it is fundamentally you're trying to cover all sides of it. You're trying to show that as much as there are people who are selfish and and arrogant and only think of their own interests and their own pleasure that doesn't mean that everybody in the world is like this and i think all of the gray area that exists between those edges comes into focus if you like because you have to admit that, that these are the two ends so therefore there's got to be stuff going on between something which thematically i'm just fascinated in life never mind in fiction well i i do appreciate that prospero and and fergus who 
are, in a sense, the villains of, of the novel. I'm going to make this bold claim because Prospero obviously represents the passive dealing with the plague of the, the original Edgar Allan Poe poem, right? Where we lock ourselves in the castle and we ignore what's happening. Whereas Fergus, he obviously subscribes to the, the same belief that we shouldn't deal with our responsibilities, but he physically kills people and like concocts schemes. It's, it's almost like you're saying Prospero is like Poe's take on this problem. And I'm going to take it a step further and say, you know, what if they were actually just killing each other in this castle? And that's, I mean, that's where the, the plot comes from, right? This is a closed space. Yeah. Precisely. They're both, they're both kind of equally evil, but I would suggest inside of that, yeah, Fergus has a, has a far more active sense of, 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 of wrongness about him, which makes him as a villain, easier to make the villain. I don't think you can make Prospero the villain because as you quite rightly say, there is that very passive element to his, to his, it's, it's, it's fundamentally Prospero is neglectful, whereas Fergus is actively hostile. And I think that's, that's, that, that's an important distinction. He is quite interesting though, that he, he does try to act just before he's, you know, murdered horribly, or I guess just after he was murdered horribly, question mark, but he does try to expose the killer so clearly he's not entirely evil. I wonder about that. I wonder about the way, do you think that Fergus as an active villain, that there is any shred of decency in him? Or is that, is he like a completely black to the core villain in your mind? What do you think? I mean, in my mind, he's absolutely terrified. Once he once he realizes that he is going to have to take on the responsibility for it, I think he is fundamentally, he's fundamentally a selfish man who has led a very easy life but the understanding of that easy life is that there is an expectation of some responsibility from him at some point potentially i think fundamentally he's just a scared man and he he is just kind of running scared and there are elements of this where i very much see him kind of making stuff up and trying to to drag as many false leads across a trail as possible you know there are certain events in the book that have two or three different interpretations you know so when they when they discover prospero's body and he's had the hands and the head cut off um there are a couple of different interpretations that can be put on that and the extent to which some of that is is what fergus intended to be the interpretation and the fact that some of it is what fergus kind of accidentally made an interpretation is very much part of his plan for me for me he's not this overarching genius who has this incredible Machiavellian 27 point plan. There are definitely times for me when he's just panicking and making stuff up just purely because he's terrified and he's trying to get out of what is expected of him. I think the other thing that's interesting is, you know, talking about like Prospero as a character, there's a note from you at the end, Jim, where you talk about how you didn't originally like the name Prospero, which was like from the original Mask of the Red Death, but ended up sticking with it as like originally your placeholder. And you make a comment here that says that the names of characters couldn't be less important, which I thought I thought was fascinating because it definitely makes Prospero stand out next to, you know, Fergus, Will, Marcus, and Tom. <laughs> and I, th I think I was surprised to some extent that when I read that, I didn't disagree with you, but I would have before I read the book. There's still an element of the choice of the names that matters. To me, it doesn't really matter whether Will is called Will or he's called Stephen, because after you've spent eight months, 10 months, a year living with them. Actually, after a while, you just start to think of, of who they are and, and kind of what purpose they serve in your story. The choice of the names was very deliberate. My, my original conception of this was that there would be more servants in 
the castle, but the servants were going to be the very old Anglo-Saxon surnames that come from a profession. So the, the, you know, the servants were going to be called like Simon Cooper or Philip Butler, where, where they are very clearly based on functional, operational, this is your job in life, it is your place to serve, it is your place to, to fulfil this. And then we're going to compare that with the landed gentry, the, the, the gentlemen, for want of a better word, who, whose servants they are, who have ridiculous surnames like Bassingham, you know, and, and Highstone and these these sort of long and convoluted names that don't mean anything because these people don't have that same expectation of servitude kind of foisted upon them. But there, there's talk about when you become king, you get to choose your own name. And so it sounds, you know, it strikes me that again, you'd get this upper, this upper, upper class, the the the, the royalty, who are even further removed from any expectation of having to do anything with running a household or anything like that, who can give themselves these ridiculous ridiculous bloody names i suppose my point was it like i said it doesn't matter whether i choose will or whether i choose steve or whether i choose marcus or i choose henry it, you know you can sit and agonize once you've once you've worked out the reason for your nomenclature just get on with it the names will take on a significance as as the story builds and as the themes develop yeah it's just so interesting thinking about it because i guess like fictionally there is this sort of half expectation that characters names will have some metatextual connection to their role in the story and in a book so much about identity where the final twist is about Thomas and the way that his identity is going to change the future it's fascinating having that note about exactly what you say there that most people's names are just kind of things that you accept as a facet of who they happen to be anyway yeah yeah, yeah I think that's fair I think that's fair yeah I feel like it's a very common I shouldn't say common, I should say classic trope of, of medieval stories with a mystery bent to them that, you know, someone gets revealed as their last name being the anagram of some royal bloodline <laughs> and like you have to resurrect this noble house because their handprint matches something or a, a, they can speak dragon tongue, you know, whatever. That's <laughs> fantasy more than strictly medieval. But like it, it is refreshing that you use titles and that you don't care that much about the specifics of of naming convention i guess although i will confess that whenever i thought of bolden i definitely thought of him having a big shiny bald head um <laughs> that's definitely something that i've carried through i felt kind of bad honestly but <laughs> i'm glad you enjoy that I'm, I'm actually curious about bolden because i was half convinced he was gonna die before the end of the book he seems to be too passive of a character to like, I, I don't know if you're bringing him back for a future sequel, but I feel like there'll be very little point to. He kind of is, he's eager to gain power and he jumps at the chance to become the the herald of Thomas. But I, I guess, I don't know. I guess I'm just curious where Baldwin kind of, in your mind, fits within the, within the cast of characters as someone who is neither part of the, the, the circle of detectives, nor is he really a villain. He's just kind of there he's, for a little bit. He's the, the wealthy book. uncle that'll throw people under the bus to get what he wants. Like, you know, he's, yes. he's the, he's the uncle who has the loans that everyone's secretly frustrated about in 14 different Agatha Christie novels. He was originally two characters. So oh. I, I, originally, I, I originally had two characters. One. Funny you should say that because this character is often adapted into multiple multiple or combined characters whenever Agatha Christie gets adapted for film. Yeah, that's a good point. That's an excellent point. No, he was originally, so in the first draft, he was two characters. I, I created a character who I love, who will definitely turn up if I write anything else. He will definitely turn up in, in, in something in the future because I was just such a huge fan of that character. 
But I realized I got about halfway through, two thirds of the way through and had nothing for that character to do. And I wrote about four chapters and was like, oh, actually, damn, where, where's this guy gone? What's he doing? Like, if you, you could stop me at any point in the book and ask me where anybody else is and I can tell you, I, I massively overthought it. But I had absolutely nothing for this guy to do. So I essentially con- condensed him. So he was he, he was he was essentially a mute alcoholic. I think there's something fascinating to me about alcoholic characters and what makes them drink. And so I, I didn't want to let that element of it go, but I, I decided to, 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 see, to tone it down a little bit. And so then Belden Gregory, who equally I didn't have very much to do with, took on certain of the characteristics. And there's there, there's a lot of backstory to Balden. There are implications in the book that something happened to his family. There's some kind of horrendous darkness in his past in some way related to his family. And that, you know, the, the easy thing would be, well, he drinks because of this awful thing that happened in his past. And I say, you know, it's not because of what happened to his family that he drinks. It's because of what he's done in the service of the king. And again, that's part of that theme of people taking on their responsibilities. And Balden being someone who absolutely threw himself wholeheartedly into what is expected of him because of his position, because of what the king asks of him. I think I just got very taken up with that character. I absolutely have plans for him going forward. I, I completely have plans for him going forward. That's good, because I, I should I should give him some, some credit because there is a perception issue with his character, I suppose. They say that he, as I, as I implicated earlier, he's part of this family and his parents died and now he's the one with all the wealth and the prestige. And there's this perspective or this perception of his character that he hasn't really earned it. And it seems like he's kind of, he's struggling against that reputation, I suppose. And even though he doesn't have as active of a role in this novel, he does seal the gate. He does man the fort at the end. You know, he's, he's still doing his duty. I I like that implication of his having some, self-destructive or perhaps nihilist thoughts that his character kind of fits into that niche. I wonder I wonder if he'll be the one to reclaim his glory and ride in with the cavalry at the end of the next one. There are plans. Whether those plans ever come to <laughs> whether those plans ever come to fruition. But you've definitely hit on you've you've, you've hit on the principle of yes. he has he has inherited a lot. Mm. And there's there's this idea of of what is what is upon him is very heavy. Yes. What he has done is very heavy. What has happened to his family is very heavy. And I've just got this guy carrying around a lot of baggage that I'm hopeful I'll get a chance to explore. Who knows? Ten years time when yeah. I eventually get around to writing a second novel, I promise you, Belden Gregory is is good. is in the mix somewhere. I'm glad to hear that. Well, I suppose that's a good place to wrap this part of the discussion with uh, thoughts of Belden Gregory, the most important character of the novel. And we can come back. It really is. <laughs> the linchpin. Talk about the mystery at the back of the show. Jim, it's wonderful to have you here on Death of the Reader. Lovely to be here. Always lovely to be here. This is your Murder Mystery World Tour here on 2SER 107.3. Don't go anywhere. More Jim Noy to come. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here with Jim Noy talking the Red Death Murders. Jim's very own novel, all the way to the end. Full spoilers are in the house. Before Herds, Uh-oh. We, we get into anything else. I should go over the point situation. Oh, no. <laughs> so, I think I got like three out of the six questions. How did I do? You got three out of the six <laughs> questions. Okay. Oh, from, the, from the challenge to the reader. That's amazing. Thank you. Jim, do you think I should get a potential three points for solving three out of your six questions? I mean, I'd definitely give you two. Okay. Thanks, Jim. <laughs> Thanks, Jim. <laughs> wow. Knife in the back. It's one point for getting two different theories, which you did. I did. And then there's two other points to allocate. 
and you got half of the questions right. Okay. So unless there's one question that you answered that you think is more significant than anything else, you're going to be walking away with two of your three points for this week. I mean, I, I don't know. I felt I felt pretty good with the how, but I will admit I, I felt like in retrospect, I didn't think about the why as much as I should have. I felt a bit bad. The the disappointment, not Jim, figuring out in uh, in in Ben's voice when look, he realized he had missed the gay <laughs> subplot was palpable. I, I, look, <sighs> the thing is, as we were discussing it last week, you were like, "You're missing something," and I was like, "Crap, he's probably gay with somebody, but I don't know who to pick." <laughs> and I and then I I realized seconds after we ended the show, I was like, "Oh, that's why Prospero was so down on everything. If it was a fake murder attempt, oh, I I understand now." Because his love has been killed. Exactly. I'm sure you did very well. It's 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 complicated. So uh, plus plus there are there are three different endings. So you know that makes it difficult to unpick quite what's going on. Yeah, you decide to basically accuse three different characters and go through. You know, this is how each of these characters could have done it. And Thomas comes up with some very clever, simple explanations for why two of the three explanations couldn't been done. But I was reminded of the spirit of this show where we challenge each other to, you know, come up with alternate solutions. I guess what I'm curious about is if there was like a fourth solution that you rejected utterly as nonsense. <laughs> like, is that something that's on the cutting room floor? I had different solutions to bits of it. So the poisoning of Prospero originally had a different solution. The vanishing of the Red Death after the attack on Prospero originally had a different solution. And so there were there were bits of it where I was certainly tinkering with, with elements of how individual pieces of the jigsaw looked, if you like. But essentially, come the end of the second draft, those two false and then one real solution existed. And I'd settled on the different understandings and the different workings of the different parts. Every author, every author who writes sort of detective fiction wants to write a poison chocolates case where you've got like six different solutions to your problem. You know, everybody wants to do something like that. But no, unfortunately, the best I could do was three. Uh, but it is also my debut novel. So who's to say in a, you know, the next one, there might be six solutions. That would be wonderful. Speaking of alternatives here, Jim, the first time we spoke to you about this book, you were talking about how you hate multiple perspectives and jumping between too many characters. I imagine, you know, multiple timeline stories where we've got different things between different timelines with different character perspectives is, 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 is not quite your wheelhouse. No, not quite. But there is a lot of timeline shenanigans going on in terms of, as you were saying earlier, Thomas having to understand all of the things that are happening in this big world around him. And uh, that's a vassal for the audience to be introduced. So you are kind of condensing multiple timelines all into be being fed into Thomas's perspective, except for italics. Oh no. Okay. Don't throw me against Jim. Don't make me fight Jim on this show. <laughs> Don't make me do it. Cause I want to, I want to preface Jim. I, I complimented in the first week, the ways in which you will set up, a crime, an impossible situation, and then kind of seed additional clues to that situation as you go forward in, in other scenes when maybe the reader's brain isn't switched on, such as the locations of ropes and the times at which things happened. But I need to tell you 
that every time I read your book and you were presenting a truth and Thomas had a little flashback in the form of an italicized quote from mm-hmm. earlier in the books, mm-hmm. I, I, cr- I cringed. I'm so, I don't know what other <laughs> word to use. I'm, I'm sorry. I feel like just, I don't know what it is exactly. Maybe I feel a little condescended too, that you feel like you have to literally quote your own text at me to justify the truth of the book. But I, there was a guttural part of me that resisted. <laughs> okay. Your, your italics. I appreciate I your honesty. I appreciate your honesty. I won't do it next time. Good. How about that? Let's, let's, let's agree that it won't happen. Well, hold again. on. I need to know why you, why you did it this time. Why did you commit this crime in your first book? What, what drove you to this? I think, I think in part because I, there's a, there's a lot happening in the book. Plot, plot wise, it's pretty dense. There are times when Thomas is thinking things and kind of remembering things that have been said to him. Because I think everything in italics is speech. And so it's him reflecting on stuff that's been said to him, partly because that's just what jumps to his mind, but also because what I didn't want was people to, because I do it all the time, when you go, well, he, he didn't say that. And suddenly you're flipping back through, trying to find where in the previous 200 pages this thing happened to check what's actually been said. I could put in a footnote and say, see page 84, because it did happen on page 84. Or I thought I could just put it in as a little bit of a callback. It's fundamentally an attempt at fair play. But I'm sorry you didn't like it. <laughs> I, I won't do it next time. It's a bit distant <laughs> from the actual book here, but I have always kind of had this thought that I'm sure authors would absolutely hate if ever became real because of the amount of extra work it would add for them. But to have like a selection box you could do at the start of an ebook that's like, I'm taking four years to read this book, so please leave in all of these flashback moments for me so I could keep track of everything. <laughs> well, yeah, that, that's a good point. That's a good point because not everybody's going to sit down and read a book cover to cover straight away, are they? Some people take, you know, a month or two to read a book. So, um, no, that, that, that's an excellent point. I think one of the other interesting things we were talking about tonally with the book as far as the mystery goes, is you were saying that, you know, you you brought these lines in the first time we spoke on the book to kind of make sure that you were staying grounded to the original, like, thesis of Mask of the Red Death when you were writing. And one of the huge challenges that you've set yourself by doing a fair play Golden Age murder mystery is that you have to do the explanations. It was really interesting seeing how you tried to slot in these pieces of like distorted textures that we were talking about into what is really the answers page at the back of the book to some extent. Yes. I mean, there's one thing about explanations is that, you know, you do just have people sat down talking to each other or somebody is usually monologuing, telling you sort of what's happened. And it's important for that to be interesting and for it to cast events in a new light so that the so that the reader doesn't sort of lose interest. So if I have three solutions, the convention is that the third solution is the correct one. Essentially, all, all you just try to do is to make each of the solutions distinct. So the first solution doesn't quite work. The second solution hopefully comes as a surprise and works apart from the fact that it doesn't explain a couple of minor points. And then you get very minor points like why did he go up to the roof? And how did Lawrence Tolworth know about a death that he hadn't been told about? And you get these, these. I love it when these tiny, obscure, seemingly pointless little nuggets turn out to reveal the key truth behind all of it as we go along. So it's, it's very important to me that as you went along, the solutions became kind of more realistic, but also then it kind of, it comes down to these tiny points that anybody else would, would 
were dismissed. Why does it matter? You know, why does it matter that someone knows something they shouldn't know? Why does it matter that a candle was lit? Like, I, I love that. It tickles me no end. The solution is solved because somebody lights a candle which I just very much enjoy. Last week, I, I kind of made the argument that it was probably not going to be well, even though the the insider being the killer is a, is a fun trope, just because of the, I guess, the, the themes of the novel, that he was like the rebel pushing back against authority. And I didn't think that you would have like the guy who gave up everything for his family's safety and fought against the king and all that stuff. I didn't think that that family would end up being the, the, the killer or the, the villains. Although... There's a comment where Thomas says that often Will and Marcus would basically ask him to choose between them in terms of whose reasoning he accepted. I was expecting, based on that conversation, for one of the two brothers to be the killer. Was that something that you ever intended? Or is that, that was, I mean, I mean, in that way, like, as like a conflict between the two of them? Bizarrely, it wasn't. But the number of people who have read this book and said to me, I was convinced it was Marcus. I was just convinced from, wow. some, from some particular point that so many people have said, yeah, I was convinced it was Marcus. There was just something about Marcus and something about his conduct. And actually, I considered Marcus to be, you know, the one non-point of view character who should be almost completely above suspicion. And I suppose, to a certain extent, that is quite suspicious. And the one person who's absolutely above suspicion is often the guilty party. So I probably should have realised that. I suppose I was a bit busy juggling the 47,000 plot strands that I had worked into this thing. To, to, <laughs> How dare you? How dare you work on a Jim book? Jim knows when everyone used the privy in this book. <laughs> he does. <laughs> yeah. But no, I'm, I'm, I'm just really interesting to me that actually the one guy who, you know, Marcus is just there to be a friend to Thomas. But he's also the thug character. He's just he's just the good guy thug character who's yeah, like, yeah, he's, I'm going to help you out, Mr. Detective, because yeah. we, we're friends. Yeah, essentially. Know? Tell you what, everybody's got so many hidden depths. I didn't realize until I sat down and did this interview with you guys just how many hidden depths there are in, in these various characters. So I, I have one last question to posit in my, my bank of questions here that I've stacked high in my favor. I'm curious why you've placed the challenge to the reader as late in the book as you have. There's an element of the locked room killing of Oswin, say, where it doesn't actually matter who is responsible for doing that. There's, there's, it's, it's established when we go through the threefold solutions. And what I wanted was everything to be kind of dealt with from a, a general perspective before we get into the specifics. I also don't think, I mean, I'm amazed if, you, if you've worked out the workings of that locked room privy killing then fair play to you because i've had so many people complain that it couldn't possibly be worked out and to a certain extent i didn't expect people to work it out and so i i didn't think it would be fair to include that in the challenge you say well how was this done because what i wanted the what i wanted the challenge to the reader to focus on was the things that are more within the concern of you know, telling you something about the person responsible for it fundamentally because that's the point where the detective where will has all of the information Prior to that, he may have had suspicions, but that's the point where he suddenly gets the last piece. It falls into place for him, and so it should fall into place for the reader as well. Yeah, I mean, I really like that idea that, you know, you as the author were very conscious of the fact that the locked room was a challenge of its own scope. Like, the reader can be trusted to spot the reveal of the locked room coming and have their own solution posed, but the rest of the stuff, you kind of have to step in and say, like, hey... These are the real questions. I, I like that sense of curation about it. Yeah, it, it's yeah. The, the, I very much see the locked room solutions as like an additional little thing on top of the cake of the overall plot. Jim, 
It has been wonderful featuring the Red Death Murders here on the show, and it's been so great getting the chance to talk with you about Always grateful for the chance to talk about the book. It's always lovely to talk to the two of you. So, uh, no, thanks very much for having me on. It's been, it's been awesome, guys. Thank you so much. If you are unfamiliar with Jim's work, he also writes theinvisibleevent.com, which is one of the wonderful murder mystery blogs that we go to to curate our selection of books for the show, uh, even if we often disagree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah disagreement's healthy don't worry about that I, exactly. I, exactly i never claim to have the last word on anything either way jim we will have links to the blog up on the podcast and all the best thank you very much this is your murder mystery world tour here on 2ser 107.3 herds so i need to let you know i'm not gonna take the entire blame for the the book that we are next to cover flex did mention this book offhandedly to me and it seemed like a good idea at the time so we are going to be reading The Capitation, Kubikiri Cycle, The Blue Savant, and The Nonsense User by Nisio Isin, Japanese author. And we are Good going to be- Gracious of the title. Yes. And we are going to be reading up to fourth day, one, one decapitation. <laughs> <laughs> That's the chapter name. What a mess. That's the chapter name. It's going right. to be great. So to, to <laughs> summarize that, we're reading Nisio Isin's Decapitation. Decapitation. The Let's, beginning yes. of the fourth day. Yeah, the beginning of the fourth day, which is also the third chapter. And yeah, it's it's a whole bunch of geniuses trapped on an island together and they don't want to call the cops. So they they get up to shenanigans. It's 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 great. Yes, I, I really thoroughly enjoyed the anime adaptation of Nisio Asin's Pretty Boy Detective Club <laughs> because grief. it is so nonsense but so charmingly engaged with the murder mystery fiction that it is poking fun at. Once again, and flex. I was I, <laughs> yep. I was recommended this book by some listeners of the show and I went to add it to my wish list and accidentally bought it and it showed up a couple of weeks later there and I went, go. what's this doing here? Yep. Once again, I'm laying the the blame for this book and its various mannerisms at the, at the feet of Flex here. That's what we're going to go with. It's going to be a wild ride. This is Death of the Reader. You're listening to 2SER 107.3. We will be back with Nisio Sin's Decapitation next week on the show. Catch you around. See you then. 